Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name's Jess Phillips, and welcome back to Yours Sincerely. Now, most of you might know I'm an MP in Birmingham, but what you might not know is that I've always been a prolific letter writer and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Kit DeWall is an author and screenwriter who recently published her memoir, Without Warning and Only Sometimes, Scenes from an Unpredictable Childhood. Kit grew up in Birmingham, where she worked in criminal and family law before writing her first novel, My Name is Leon. The book went on to be shortlisted for the British Book Awards, Desmond Elliott Prize, and be adapted into a film for the BBC. Today, I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. Hello, Kit. How are you in your lovely room? I'm very good. Thank you, Jess. Very good to see you. You too. Um, So this is all about uh, letter writing. Now, I'm afraid to say that there is a big, uh, there's a division in the people that I have on this podcast, um, and that division is age. Uh, and the people who are under the age of 30 have literally never written a letter in their lives. Uh, and so I'm going to assume that the answer to my question is yes, because I'm going to say, are you, were you much of a letter writer? Are you much of a letter writer? Back in the day, I was, um, I mean, I was a letter writer anyway. I used to write to my cousin in Australia from the time I was about 11. But I then worked as a secretary. And back in those days, your job was to open the post and it would be, you know, all letters, business letters. And you might have 40 and you'd open them with a paper knife <laughs> and you'd stamp them to say, this is the day they came in. And then you, answered them by typing the response so from the time somebody wrote to you put it in the post you got it that let's say that's three days then you got it you might answer it the next day they take so it was a week email now is like bam instant it was a week before you got an answer and you know what there's something very lovely about that because you get time you know someone's not saying can I have that by the close of play today you know, close of play. Yeah. You know, like close of play was end of the month. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I do miss it. And um, there is something 
very lovely about getting a handwritten anything like birthday card, Christmas card, but especially a letter. There's nothing like it. Let me just say this. I know I've got a big mouth, but I'll carry on. Um, Mark Twain said when he was writing to his brother, I'm sorry this is a long letter. I didn't have time to write you a short one. (laughs) And what that means is you put such a lot of thought into a letter when you write a letter. You don't just rattle it off like you do with an email, no thought. You think about it. It's it's got a different quality to it. I just think I'm more honest in the medium yes. of pen to paper. Uh, and I, not that, you know, you, you're deeply dishonest when you're writing an email, but there is something of playing a role when you're, yes. you're, you know, you're in the role of a person who's emailing like you're at work or you're, you know, it's or you're cross about something and you're emailing yes. a complaint or something. Whereas when I sit down, I, I feel like there's an honesty in because for me to be doing that, I must really want them to see my hand marks. Yes. And there's a there's just I just feel like I'm much more likely to tell the real story if I write it down. Um, so do you have any special letters that you've kept or letters of note from anyone particularly special? No, I don't think so. Uh, oh, no, that's not true. I keep cards from my children, birthday cards from my children, where they've been told to say, I love you, mom. I don't <laughs> care why they've said it. I'll still have it because <laughs> that's you know, it's as close as I get from them to I know. I, I often wonder about the aunts and uncles who send 20 quid in the post to my kids, if they feel any sincerity in what is written back from my children, because it is just like, thanks for the money. I bought this. And it's just like... Totally. They do, they and you have to, you stand forced. over them yeah. and you go, write it now and then say thank you and then put two kisses <laughs> and, you, and then you send it off. Everyone knows the kids have been forced oh. into it. Yeah, but still, it has it carries some some form of sentiment still. Um, so uh, I've asked you to have a little think uh, about the people that you would want to celebrate in the medium of letters. Uh, and the first person I asked you to think about was the person who means the world to you. So who have you picked to send that particular letter to? I've picked somebody called Adam Sharp, who's a friend of mine. And I don't know about you, but normally, well, I'm older than you, so I'm 62 now. And I sort of think, I've got my friends. Do you know what I mean? I'm not making any new friends. I've got my friends. I definitely I've, you know, think that, and I'm only 41. <laughs> exactly. So, But Adam came into my life about five or six years ago when I wrote an anthology called Common People, and he was one of the people that contributed to it. And he wrote about his the beginning of his life. Uh, his mother was a heroin addict. His father was a heroin addict as well, but his mother was horrified to find herself pregnant and tried to get rid of him, uh, but she was too far gone to have an abortion, so she did lots of other things. So this 2,000-word memoir was about him writing about that. It was so naked and honest and beautiful, and I thought, I've got to meet this guy, because I didn't meet everybody that contributed to the anthology, but I had to meet him. And we've just become really, really good friends. And that's like, for me, quite unusual to have a good friend that I haven't known for that long. Um, He is now an author in his own right. He wrote a book called The Correct Order of Biscuits, which is just (laughs) a book of lists. And and the first, the the, the title name comes from the fact that he's, he's ranked biscuits in the correct order. Obviously, malted milk at number one. I mean, I mean what can I say? Obviously. It wouldn't obviously. be my choice, but uh, I can see why it's an obvious choice. It's a classic. 
it's a classic. And um, he's also doing a piece, he's doing a PhD now on um, heroin babies and how society views people born with addiction and the issues that arise from them. And we spend a lot of time together and we ring each other and swear. We watch trash TV together. First dates. I wouldn't say first dates was trash TV. I mean, it is, but it's brilliant. But it's brilliant. Exactly. So we're all getting heartwarming, actually, I think. I don't think it gets enough credit for the fact that it's actually really. It's kind. It's kind. It's not um, it's not what my dad refers to all TV as at the moment is like humiliation. Watch. Yes. It's not humiliating. It's sort of gentle. And well, the it's thing kind. Is, so I actually think it deserves more credit than, than I do. Than I wouldn't that. say it's, it's trash yeah. TV. Um, we see each other probably only two or three times a year, but it's like intense. We catch up on all our dating woes, on our, you know, what's wrong with the world, politics. We swear a lot. I do. I've got foul language. So we swear a lot. It's just great. I love him. It's great. Oh, I mean, it's a fascinating uh topic the heroin babies thing and it definitely needs uh more research into it and the experience of there's very very little actually that um has been done over the years around um well children born like uh, and in neutro the, the the difficulty being there so children born of rape there is very very yes. little research of uh into or support for children born of rape, uh, certainly children born with addiction, um, is uh, an, another thing I can't think of a specific service for people in their adulthood. Um, and, yeah, so there is definitely a need to look into those things. So all power to his elbow. And I'm glad that even through some of that trauma, he was able to, you know, categorise biscuits. As a very important thing. On Twitter, he's got about 40,000 followers. He's called The List Guy. And he does these really weird lists, which are absolutely hilarious. He's got a second book coming out soon. Um, but on the subject of, of children doing uh, born with substance abuse, a lot of the research comes out of America um, and it's in, onto crack, which is similar, not the same. Um, I've, I've got two adopted children. One was born with substance abuse uh, in utero and I worked in adoption and we, for many, many years, and we used to have children who were born of rape that no one would adopt. Now, mm. My That's God. got to do with anything. I don't know. Yeah. But it, it's a major factor. If you have to tell prospective adopters and prospective adopters are very, oh, I don't know. This is a baby. This is a oh baby God. born of rape. And it has a massive effect on that child's chances of adoption. Factor in any substance abuse. And of course, what happens is if you are uh, a woman taking heroin or crack, or coke and you're pregnant and you think oh my goodness I do want to look after my baby and you reduce your intake of drugs what happens then is you drink alcohol more to cope and then you've got children born with fetal alcohol syndrome which is as destructive if not more destructive and also women women don't come forward there's only two places in the entire country for women to go into rehab with their children with them 
Um, two places. That's just not... Not enough. That's just totally unacceptable, especially being as most women who are suffering from substance misuse um, are it's because of uh, previous trauma yes. and or violence in their own lives. It's deeply unsupportive, actually. Um, and so it's really, really important that... Um, People are writing about that sort of uh, thing. Your life in family law um, is uh, criminal and family law is absolutely fascinating to me. I, I shall admit something to you that if there was one institution in the in the world that I could bomb and start again, it would be the family law courts. Family law courts. I have to say, yeah, I, I I am at my wits' end with family law um, regarding domestic abuse all the time. Yeah. Uh, it just seems not a system fit for purpose, not transparent, not... Oh, it's frightening. It's an absolutely frightening system. And there's not enough expertise. I sat in the family law... I was a magistrate for a while and sat in the family law courts. And I think what there needs to be... I've, As a magistrate, I had other magistrates say to me things like, really, does that happen? And I'm like, whoa, whoa. You know, you should know what happens in a house in some families between relationships. There's good training now, but there's not enough expertise around the table when you're considering anything to do with domestic abuse and, and very difficult, critical family circumstances. And I think people need to understand the complexity and the dynamics that go on behind closed doors, not always what's standing in front of you, but why that might be standing in front of you. Yeah, it's tricky. It needs masses of reform um and masses more so uh how would you sign off your letter to adam what would you want to say to him i would say go forth because he needs to be doing the work that he's doing and it's it's really important so i just say go forth and multiply if you can <laughs> and if you can't just do the work <laughs> I'm constantly telling people not to multiply. I, I sort of wish I, you know, sometimes I look at the lives of my friends who didn't multiply and I think, you've got a crack in life. Um, you seem to go on holiday to the Caribbean much more than me. Or have a line. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Or, or just like, you know, be the master of your own destiny and only your yes. own destiny. It does seem pretty nice. So the second letter that I asked you uh, to think about is uh, to somebody who's no longer here or no longer with us or no longer with you. And yeah, so, so who, that would be would that my be? uncle Mike. And when we were little, we had difficult family circumstances. And uncle Mike was my dad's cousin. He looked like Baloo from the Jungle Book. This massive bear-like Man, we sort of bad teeth and a jowly face. He'd never shaved. He wore scruffy clothes. Oh, my God. I loved him. And he would come without warning. I mean, I know that's the title of my book. But anyway, he did. He used to just walk in the door and go, come on. And we'd get in his terrible van that would have been condemned. It was a old VW camper van. And he used it to transport the steel drums for his uh, Caribbean setup the St. Christopher Steel Band. And we'd get in, it nearly, it would crash, obviously, nearly on the way. And then when we got to his house, which would, I say house, bed seat in Small Heath, he would make us carrot juice. We could climb all over him. He'd tell us stories from the West Indies. Oh, my God. I loved him. Carrot juice? 
Oh, is that, thing that, Car- is that a thing that kids want? Carrot juice? <laughs> when I say carrot juice. <laughs> so it's a West Indian thing where you grate carrots, you squeeze out the juice, you add a lot of sugar. You know, it's it's mostly sugar, let's be fair, but it is orange, pale orange. I hated it, actually, but I'd still had it because I was desperate. <laughs> um, and it, he used to make us this sweet nonsense and then he'd feed us and he'd give us dumplings johnny cakes and salt fish and all the things we couldn't do with my father climb on him talk to him get a hug from him because he looked so much like my dad you got it from uncle mike he was this you know he was the epitome of the best uncle in the world nothing like my father and my mother because he was just so lackadaisical and so mad not mad what's the word loose he was loose he was blue he was just this big fat wonderful breath of fresh air in a in a a childhood really quite bereft of celebration and fun he rocks up and you go the world is okay uncle mike exists now obviously i'm about to wildly stereotype now although i feel i can do this because as the representative of small heath and also (laughs) having come from exactly where you come from the idea that the irish community and the west indian community in birmingham of which you are from both is not like i mean it's it's full of celebration, but at home it didn't, you know, your 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 Irish mother and West Indian father weren't the What you have ones. to factor into that scenario is my mother becoming a Jehovah's Witness. Oh, gosh, yeah. So mm. the killjoy of religions, it has to be said. <laughs> if there is joy in the world, that is a religion that will squash it. So we grew up with no birthdays, no Christmas, bonfire night. Uh, Valentine's Day, St. Swithin's Day, Pancake Day. You couldn't have it. How come she became a Jehovah's Witness as an Irish person? That seems unusual. She was quite devout, um, but she felt in disgrace because she'd had these three uh, children out of wedlock. She she wanted forgiveness. And then somebody, really lovely woman actually called Stella, knocked the front door and said... God's going to forgive you and you can live forever. And she was like ready to sign up within an hour. And that was it for us. Christmas is over. Birthday is over. Fun over. You're going to die at Armageddon, which was 1975, by the way, Uh, apparently. Um, So all of that fun that we'd had up until then, up until I was six, which I sort of remember, disappeared. And we became the joyless family. I mean, we obviously took the piss out of everyone. So we we had quite a lot of fun under the radar, but there were no celebrations. So Uncle Mike coming was like Christmas. It was like our Christmas. He was he was wonderful. I mean, it's nice to know that when they're door knocking, somebody does change. They must be doing it for a reason. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad to hear that somebody's door they knocked actually did convert. Oh, because yes. as somebody who knocks doors uh, regularly to talk to people <laughs> about their voting intentions, I'm quite glad that they aren't knocking. I often think, does anyone say, oh yeah, I'll become a Jehovah's Witness, but now I have no, a No, they really to... do. And also uh, we grew up, so the congregation I was in was mostly Greek. Oh really? So there were mostly Cypriot Greeks, I would say. Um, then there were some black families and some white families, yeah. but I'd say half were Greek. S- sort of mid- middle-aged 
to elderly black ladies walking up and down my street are the ones I come across. And uh, when we were, when I worked in a women's refuge, we had uh, a woman called Velma who was a Jehovah's Witness, and it was brilliant because she'd always do the Christmas shift <laughs> in refuge. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like yes, Velma. That was my shift. mom. That was my mom. She, she, you know, she was a, a nursing auxiliary at Dudley Road. And she would get she, any unpopular shift for a celebration. My mum's there. Yeah, I can imagine why that might have made for, especially when you come from this rich vein of uh, celebration and cultural background in oh, in, in we, basically the party centre of Birmingham. Um, you know. Exactly. It must Mind have you, been I mean, difficult. we all, as we got to 16, uh, we all of us, you know, just like, see ya. You know, we were off to live our lives. We knew what we were missing. And you left home, you either were a Jehovah's Witness or you left home. So I left home when I was 16, uh, as we all did, more or less. And then it was sex, drugs and rock and roll in Mosley Village. Yeah. You know, it was like trying to make up for everything that we had lost. I had my 21st birthday party was three days long. <laughs> I was like, let's go. That sounds, let's go. That sounds like Mosley Village to me. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, I met my, um, well, I didn't meet him. I'd known him before, but we started going out um, in the Bull's Head in Mosley, me and my husband. Uh, he worked there and I worked there as well. But also his parents met in the Bull's Head uh, in, in the 1970s. Uh, and that's where they'd met. So the Bull's Head in, in Mosley Village is a place for happy, long-term relationships to start. So, oh, I better go and sit yeah, in the get, snog. Get, get yourself it down <laughs> the Bull's Head in Mosley, which is now called the Cuban Embassy. Um, but it's still very much the Bull's Head. Uh, so Uncle Mike, and he, he just... he. He just, he wasn't your, he wasn't your uncle, he was your dad's cousin. He was uh, my dad's cousin, but yeah. Because he's older than you, call everybody uncle. Even, yes. I mean, literally the man who borrows your dad's ladders is your Absolutely. uncle. Absolutely, the woman next door, door. Auntie Marg. Yeah. yeah, everybody is your auntie and uncle. I, my children don't even call their actual aunties and uncles auntie no. and uncle. And I, I am like, <gasps> apart from my auntie and uncle, my actual ones... They do refer to them as that because I just don't think I could have them referred to without them saying the term auntie and uncle. No. It's just be so rude. So rude. For, for a certain generation, you, I think you would say it. Um, my son doesn't even call me mum. No, He'll my say son to doesn't. Me, Mandy, where, where's the dinner? Yeah. You know, and I'd be like, wow. My, wow. my son claimed that I didn't listen to him when he used the term mom. And so he refers to me as Jess Phillips. MP for Birmingham Yardley. <laughs> Just for its MP for Birmingham Yardley. When is dinner ready? I'm like that. Yeah, Luke Luke would say to, for a long time he called me commandermom.com. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what. I think it might be something to do with how strict I was. <laughs> you let them have birthdays. They don't know they're born. Oh, they have they have birthdays. My children have birthdays and half birthdays. <laughs> I've got to make up for mine. So they have the big birthday, obviously, on the day. And then six months into the year, they have a half birthday. I mean, that's They're never going to lose out. That's... Obviously, I'm trying to make up for my own terrible... I mean, it doesn't take a psychiatrist to know yeah. that I'm trying to make up for something else, but they love it, obviously. They get two bites of the cherry. <laughs> so, Uncle Mike, what what became of him? He died about... Oh, this must be about 15, 16 years ago. In the West Indies, he he made it back to the West Indies. He went back to St. Kitts to live and died out there. I, I often, I mean, most of um, the West Indian people that I grew up with, their families were first 
their mums and dads were first yes. generation. Um, and, you know, there was always this sense that people would go back. I like to hear the stories that when people like, went back I mean because I, I think I would rather grow old in St Kitts oh. I've never actually been to St Kitts no. so maybe I maybe I wouldn't maybe maybe I'm destined to Mosley for the rest of my life but um the you know this is a nice idea that people totally my, my we're dad, always planning yeah. to go back we're always planning my dad would never have called Birmingham home he never did call Birmingham home he'd say if he said I'm going home he meant to the West Indies and Springfield Road was where he lived, but it was never home to him. Uh, and he died before he could get home. So he never got to go home. Whereas Uncle Mike went when he was relatively well and, you know, enjoyed his time back home. My dad really was too ill to go back. So Monk, I love the idea that Big Fat Uncle Mike in a bedsit in Small Heath is where your happy childhood memories are really, really happy memories. So warm. I mean, I owe that man some thanks. I really do. So what would you say to him in signing off a letter to Uncle Mike? I would say, thank you, Baloo, <laughs> is what I'd say. He's a, absolutely uh, a ray of sunshine in a, in a miserable time, I think. Yeah, good old Uncle Mike. The good people of Small Heath. I mean, I love I love Small Heath, and I think that everybody whose family are from Birmingham in a sort of bygone era, everybody's family moves through Small Heath. It is it's funny, like the sort of um, the immigrant uh, journey that you take in, and I'm sure it's the same in all big cities with large immigrant populations. Um, uh, I always I always consider it that everybody's just moving up the Stratford Road. Yes. Uh, trying to basically make it to Solly Hull. <laughs> it's like everybody slowly but surely. It's like, ha, 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 Solly Hull. <laughs> it, must be, it must be absolutely the same in every big city, but we just happen to know about that one. Um, but, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I'm glad that Uncle Mike made it all the way back to St Kitts. We'll be back for the final letter after a short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the final uh, letter I asked you to think about writing was to somebody who wouldn't know what an effect they'd had on you, somebody who would be, you know, surprised to hear it. So who would that be? That would be Sally Wainwright. Oh, that's who, a great shout. Who, you know, just in case people don't know, she's a screenwriter. She started writing for soaps. I think she wrote for The Archers and Coronation Street. And she is the writer and creator of things like Happy Valley, um, Scott and Bailey, Last Tango in Halifax. She is a force for good. I mean, when I say good, her portrayal, of real people and working class families, nobody does it like she does. And it's because, I mean, I don't even know what her background is. I know she went to university. I'm not saying she wasn't working class, but I know she went to university. I assume she was working class, she was from Huddersfield. But she gets it right. She writes women that are strong women without being fake, strong. You know, you don't have to have a power suit on to write a strong woman. She writes... Real women who are inevitably strong women. She writes stories that we can relate to, normal people. She also wrote um, a very good, I think it was a two-hour film about the Brontes, which uh, is from the area she lives in. And it was showing the Brontes, not as some, you know, Downton Abbey period drama, which makes me gag, but it was a normal house, uh, quite cold, you know, it had that feel that this is how they really lived. It wasn't technical or ball games. It was really... Well, it would have been freezing. Freezing cold. In the north of England, in a house without... In a massive house without Absolutely. heating. Absolutely. I mean, and, it's what the country's currently suffering right now, and they didn't have a big Odie to throw No, on. and also... With unicorns they, on it. You know, we think of them as being quite middle class, and of course they were middle class, they weren't poor. But, you know... They had sort of no carpet on the floor and, they, you know, really quite cramped circumstances. And anyway, she filmed it in, I think, the Bronte Parsonage. It's It was brilliant uh, in bringing home to us what those real lives were. And I think that's why I, I, do, I do do screenwriting. And I have to say, if it wasn't for Sally Wainwright, I would believe that there was no room for working class stories that don't do a bit of poverty porn. You know, like what you see of working class stories on telly is my big fat whatever, or uh, something about gypsies, something about um, Benefit Street, sneering, in other words. Like, let's us sit here and let's judge what they wear on their wedding day. Let's sit here and let's judge what they spend their benefits on. Let's sit here and judge. And I... They're not allowed to be clever. Not allowed really to be clever. Please me. That you know that they're not allowed to be clever. When you grow up in a working class background, like people are really clever and learned and know loads about really esoteric things, and I, I just that never ever ever comes across. It is the reason why I am totally and utterly uh, will forever be committed to the writing of Sue Townsend. Yes, is because the you know they're, they're, this was like a family that were allowed to be 
clever and political and working yes. class. I was like that. Oh God, look! Like they're talking about politics, and it was, it, and and they knew what they were talking about, and they weren't grotesque, but they weren't perfect. Absolutely. It's just really rare. It's really, really rare. It's really rare, and and for for me. She is proof that there's an audience for those stories. Now, those stories don't get on telly very often. They really don't get on telly very often, but they do get there largely, I would say, because of people like her that have done some great, you know, spent a long time. She's not a young woman. She spent a long time in the background. She's really, I'd say, only in the past 10, 15 years got her due of what, you know, for the great work that she does. And look how popular it is. And I think for commissioners everywhere that are commissioning TV programmes, can we have more like that, please? Can we have more working class stories that are good stories? And they're not about being working class. They happen to be working class. Let's not fetishize what it is to be working class, but just show 53% of this country is working class. It's not. There's nothing or much more. to it other or than more. it is life. Exactly. It, it, it's normal. It's, you know, people don't get up in the morning and go, oh, I'm working class, let me get my whippies and my flat cap. They just get on with their life. And yet so much of what we see on television, if it's a working class story, you've got the e-bag gum going on all the time. Or someone was a minor, someone was a doctor. That's not the real world It's also world very, it's very masculine, and the idea I think of working she, class. It's very masculine often, and that is problematic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And where you see working class lives, unfortunately, a lot on television, I talk as someone that's watched Coronation Street all their life, but you get it through the soaps. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that shouldn't be the end of the working class experience on television. Um, Lots of people denigrate the soaps, lots of people slag off the soaps, it's not proper storytelling, whatever. Um, And I think that's where commissioners on TV say, oh, but we've got the soaps got eastenders we've got that we've got that so all the rest can be the glossy nonsense or the endless fucking remakes <laughs> of pride and prejudice the mo- we must be on number seven we've got to be on number seven can we can we make something else could we make something else can we make a working class story one of the old working class yeah. stories that they're out there there's been one saturday night sunday morning by the way one and yet how many pride and prejudices are we going to have or Emma or Sense and Sensibility millions they cost I saw um, Sam Mendes uh, talking recently he's obviously got a new film out and he said I have two tasks one was about something directorial that I didn't really understand about one shot and the other thing is he said I intend never to tell a story that the um, the audience already knows the end of so no remakes and I thought oh that's bloody thank God thank God thank God and, and you, you know, I love Pride Prejudice's story. I love every, uh, you know, series that's come out, every film that's come out. Yes, I've watched it. There are so many other stories to tell. There really are. But broadcasters want to play it safe. They they know people will sign up and sign in for a giant Jane Austen. There are other books. There are other stories. Please can we have that? And please, can we have Sally Wainwright doing it? My introduction to Sally Wainwright was um, intense. Uh, so I'm uh, my very, very closest friend in Parliament is uh, a woman called Holly Lynch, and she is the MP for Halifax, where Happy Valley and Last Tango in Halifax is filmed. Um, and I, I, 
Sally Wainwright, maybe. I, I mean, my idea of Halifax in my head before I went there to help her campaign, because it's quite a marginal seat, uh, is not the Halifax that I arrived in, um, where the first person I saw had a man bun. I was like, that. Ooh, this I wasn't expecting this, Halifax. <laughs> You've got a bit trendy. Um, it's really quite trendy. And I spoke to Holly about it and I said, oh, you know, has it changed quite a lot um, in your lifetime? And she said that the film industry brought to the area by Sally Wainwright has totally and utterly changed the prospects <laughs> of the place where she lives. So there is, uh, you know, it's, uh, and Holly and uh, Sally are constantly uh, talking about things and she talks to her about what issues people are facing um, so that she can make sure it gets included in things like Happy Valley. So like the flooding or the, you know, the, the specific issues around immigration, she makes sure that she is actually representing the people of Halifax where it is uh, represented. Um, but ha- Holly invited me to season, the, the the premiere of season three of Happy Valley. And um, I had never watched it before. And I, not not wanting to not do my homework, in two nights, I stayed up all night watching the first series and then the second <laughs> series. I felt like I was a serial killer by the end of it. Um, <laughs> and it was so intense um, that when, by the time I, we went, I went to see it, uh, that everyone was like, we've waited seven years for this next episode. And I thought, I've waited nine minutes. <laughs> I only just finished it. I literally just finished it. I haven't waited seven years. But what I would say is because I watched it all so intently is that that it's it, and this is rare in um, in any and I understand why it's rare. The way that people talk to each other in Happy Valley is one of the only reflections of how people actually talk to each other. Totally. Yeah, it's like the totally. also they drop things in the kitchen and yes. stuff like I'm like that. Oh yes, I'll because tell you the other thing that happens in Happy Valley, they lock their car. Yeah, you know, like. <laughs> In, you know, any other thing, they, they get the parking space right outside the shop and they get out, they slam the door, they stroll in the car, still there when they get back. And you're like, <laughs> no, that wouldn't happen. And I, she got out of the car the other day and she actually, you know, I'm not saying formal, but, you know, took her time and, lo- and not with a bleep because yeah. it wasn't a posh car. It was key in, turn. And I was like, yes, thank you. Yeah. It's real. There's a moment where she drops a tea towel and they sort of like... You know, they just carry like, just carry on. And I was like, that. oh, my God, you, you don't notice that it isn't there until it is there. And you think, oh, my totally. God, what a total rarity. That um, And the way they talk to each other, um, the way they have phone calls between her and her sister, where they're not yes. really saying anything. No. It's not moving the story forward, even. No. It's just like they're just talking on the phone. I think, oh, my God, that's so, it's brave to put that dialogue yes. in. Um, because it's sort of meaningless. Um, but I just think, oh gosh, that's so it makes it makes me believe it so totally. much more. Yes. Um, you 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 listen to those what seem to be quite innocuous conversations that actually are doing something because they're ramping up the tension a lot of the time. So you listen to those conversations, and because you believe those characters, you believe they will go on to do what they do. And it's 
incredibly well done. It, and, you know, hats off as well to Sarah Lancashire. And oh, the other yeah, yeah. The acting. People. You know, they're the, fantastic. The acting is immaculate, but the words are. And we, I, the actors Brilliant. were at the premiere and they did this talking thing afterwards where they get questioned. And they all just were like, Sally's a genius. Sally's a genius. Yes. So, you know, yes. like it's. Um, yes. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There is that that sort of the storytelling. And, and as somebody who works in the field of violence against women and girls, which lots of the um, the content in yes. Happy Valley focuses on, um, I I I don't tend to watch that sort of thing because I like to basic. I basically you know, I want to watch first dates uh, and frippery when I'm in my <laughs> yeah. normal life. But that I have to say, and I'm so keen to pick holes in things. I'm so keen oh, to be like, too. oh, this would never happen. But actually, yeah. uh, aside from if only there were actually real police officers that gave quite so much more of themselves. Apart, aside yes. from that. I can't find fault with it and it's very irritating. And what I like is she's allowed to be clever. That's the thing that, like, she's yes. allowed to be clever and funny and she uses um, literary, in a thick accent, she uses, like, literary references. Yes. And that is really rare that working class characters are allowed to, you know, you know, cite Dante. Or <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. It's, it's just incredible. I mean, she's... For, uh, you know, also, you know, she didn't, as I say, didn't come to prominence till later in life. And I think for any woman in particular, any screenwriter trying to make it in the industry, it is a breath of fresh air. It's an open door. I'm not saying it's an open door, but the door has been opened by somebody. And you feel she can do it. I can do it. You can see your life on screen or an approximation of your life on screen. You can see this woman being successful, getting her dues, getting the awards, and yet not watering down what she's got to say, not pandering to the gallery, not pandering to middle-class sensibilities and what commissioners think they want, but actually saying, no, this is the authentic life that I know about. That's what I'm going to write about. And it's going to be great. And it is great. So, yeah, hats off to I Sally Wayne, right? You're right. I, you know, I thought it was good. You know, I think it's good. But you're absolutely right. It's the portrayal, the intelligent portrayal of the working classes. So how would you sign off your letter to Sally? <gasps> right. I've said thank you to Uncle Mike, so I can't say thank you to Sally. <laughs> um, I would say never change to Sally. Just say thank you. Never change. I can't say thank you again. Um, you, you never change. Keep going. I don't think she is going to change. I was, she actually, I was ride, uh, driving to the QE hospital this morning and she was on the radio uh, and somebody uh, was delivering a parcel to her house while she was on the Today programme. <laughs> she answered the door. So uh, I think, I, I don't I think it. she's going to, uh, it's a bit like the, the dropping of the tea towel. That does really happen in real life. Like <laughs> stuff happens in real life when you're on the Today programme. Sometimes you get, you a, get parcel. a parcel. <laughs> That's life. Well, Kit, it has been uh, just a genuine pleasure. It's always, I always really, I, I especially like it when people who come on are from uh, Birmingham, but, uh, you know, to have had so much of a cultural crossover with you because we are from the very same bit of Birmingham is uh, a total pleasure for me and it has been lovely to hear about your uh, people uh, I would very much like to hang out with uh, all of them and uh, you know I, I like to think of Uncle Mike with uh, you know you and Adam watching first dates uh, <laughs> that was, 
With Sally like, Wainwright. With Sally Wainwright. Her. Sally Wainwright seems a hoot to me. No, I think so, definitely. I'll make I'll bring the carrot juice, Jess. You bring the carrot yeah. juice. We'll get together. <laughs> I think, you know, this is gonna be amazing. Um it's been a total pleasure, Kit. Thank you so very much. Thanks, Jess. Loved it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you click the follow button now on the app where you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod, and I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. This has been an Audio Always original. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, but you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.